From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll reconsider the question, what explains the vote of Trump supporters? Why did they vote the way they did? Joshua Holland will report on some important new research on this important question. Also, David Cole, legal director of the ACLU and legal correspondent for The Nation, will talk about the resistance. He's found some lessons from outside the United States, from other countries facing autocratic leaders, lessons for our work in the age of Trump. But first, how a presidency ends. For that, we turn to Frank Rich. Frank is writer-at-large for New York Magazine, where he writes about politics and culture. He's also an executive producer of Veep at HBO. Before New York Magazine, he had a wonderful career at the New York Times as an award-winning op-ed columnist, and before that as drama critic. My favorite of his books is the fabulous memoir, Ghost Light, which we talked about here a few years ago. We reached him today at Paramount Studios, where he's working on the next season of Veep. Frank Rich, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Great to talk to you again. You recently immersed yourself in the history of the end of the Nixon presidency. What did you call that? Well, wallowing in Watergate, which was, of course, a phrase that Nixon used because um, uh, in July of uh, 1973, after there had been two months of brutal Senate Watergate hearings, the whole what did you know and when did he know it part of uh, Watergate, uh, Nixon, in his typical sort of pious, phony, faux piety, said, uh, let other people uh, wallow in Watergate. We're going to go back to work, you know, for the American people, something that we've heard uh, other presidents, including the current one, uh, say when uh, they're under uh, attack for scandal. Of course, we know that times have changed uh, since 1973 and 74. We know the Republicans are different now, but you've found some wonderful stuff from your wallowing in Watergate. I think one of the most striking to me was the New York Times report you found. Our national newspaper of record reported that Americans were feeling, quote, a certain numbness about Watergate, and that congressmen going home for the summer recess found, quote, no public mandate for any action as bold as impeachment, close quote. What do you make of these reports as our representatives head home for this summer's recess? Well, I should say, you know, Nixon resigned in August of 1974. This New York Times report was actually a year before. It was it was the summer before the year he resigned. What struck me was that was a period when people were saying they were bored with Watergate and and Democratic congressmen were telling this to the Times as well from their constituents. It was after the hearings, it was after John Mitchell, who had been both uh, campaign chairman for Nixon and his attorney general, had been indicted. And yet people were sort of blowing it off. Uh, Nixon's approval rating had sunk, but into the sort of where Trump's has been fairly recently to the mid to upper 30s. And uh, people were sort of ready to kind of move on. What happened a year later, um, besides many more revelations, was uh, the midterms were approaching. So, and, and that's when it all started to run downhill for Nixon. So if you want to sort of transpose then on to now, 
this would be July of uh, 73, and it's next July, as the next midterms are approaching in 2018, uh, that, that this would blow up for the current president. Of course, probably the biggest difference between those years and now is that in the Watergate years, the Democrats controlled both the House and the Senate. Today, of course, it's the opposite. The Democrats hope to retake the House in uh, November 2018. There seems to be no chance they'll retake the Senate. That would seem to be the end of the story, at least as far as impeachment goes. I wonder if you agree well, with that. I've never felt that Trump would be impeached by a Republican uh, Congress. If it turns out there's a divided Congress in 18, assuming he lasts that long, it also wouldn't happen. But of course, Nixon wasn't impeached either. It was finally voted out of committee, but he resigned uh, under a lot of pressure, including the pressure of possibly uh, going to jail before there was impeachment. Clinton had an actual impeachment, but not Nixon. And I feel that, you know, people have been saying, uh, citing this difference between then and now constantly, well, you know, Nixon was up against a Democratic Congress, so of course he was in bigger trouble than Trump. But that's a that's actually a misunderstanding of what Congress was, what that Congress was. In the early 1970s, many Democrats, particularly Southern Democrats, were Nixon supporters, including powerful people in the Senate, including Sam Irvin, the Democrat the Southern Democrat who ran the Watergate hearings, who began by saying there's no way in the world Nixon could be guilty of any of this. These are the, the sort of the Dixiecrat Democrats who would ultimately become Republicans, you know, become yeah. the, the, the Richard Shelby's and Jeff Sessions of today, but still were in the Democratic Party. Only Strom Thurmond really had switched over then. So Nixon uh, really actually had a very supportive Congress. Um, and in the end, however, his luck ran out. There are so many divergences between Nixon's story and, and Trump's, especially between the two people. Nixon was a lifelong politician, a history buff, a policy wonk, a lawyer, and a president with many huge achievements. And I don't recall any pussy-grabbing on Nixon's uh, part. No, I don't think there was any <laughs> pussy-grabbing, but also... Indeed, Nixon was a lawyer, a clever lawyer, uh, and so he knew what the rule of law was, even if, as he was breaking it. Yeah. Uh, Trump seems to have, as we know, absolutely no idea. Also, Nixon was keenly aware that you could get in trouble for obstruction, uh, for a cover-up, and he actually used to lecture uh, his staff about it, that the cover-up would, would would get them if the crime didn't, not referring to Watergate because he didn't think he'd ever be caught. He learned that uh, really from his pursuit uh, in the House Un-American Activities Committee days earlier in his career when he went after the State Department, suspected uh, State Department spy Alger Hiss. Alger Hiss uh, was not uh, convicted of uh, treason. He was convicted of perjury. And so Nixon was keenly aware of it, and yet still didn't escape it. Trump is oblivious to, yeah. <laughs> to the jeopardy that he or his staff or his relatives in the White House might be in. And so, frankly, almost every aspect of, of Nixon uh, that differs from Trump is in, in Trump's disfavor. Uh, Nixon was much cannier and wilier than Trump, 
and could have staved off scandal uh, a much much better than than Trump seems to be. And there's one more respect in which Nixon was way ahead of Trump, and that was the margin of victory in the 1972 election. Nixon got something like 60 percent of the popular vote. Trump got what 46 percent. Now you may see that that made uh, Nixon overconfident, but on the other hand, he had won a historic victory and had a lot of reason to think that the public was behind him. Absolutely. Indeed, I think possibly the popular vote margin in numbers uh, set a record at that time. He really won in a landslide uh, over McGovern. So uh, he started with a, a, a much bigger base of support um, uh, than Trump did, and indeed entered the White House with much higher approval ratings. And of course, Trump had an historic low approval rating for someone just after inauguration. So the fact is that in almost every, the only place where Trump um, trumps Nixon is that Nixon did have something of a drinking problem, and Trump is the teetotaler. But that's it. In every other way, intelligence, wiliness, legal knowledge, political skills political support, Nixon was in a much better position to sustain the damage of scandal uh, than Trump is. One of the things that you did in your period of wallowing in Watergate was to read the wonderful contemporaneous columns by Elizabeth Drew. She emphasized that Nixon burned with resentment and always sought revenge on his enemies. That sounds like our current president. It does. He was very paranoid. He he wanted to, you know, get back at enemies, even, you know, he actually had enemies lists, of course, but even he could never forget even a petty grievance. And look, that's like, you know, Trump fighting with Golf Magazine. Um, no, no slight uh, was too small for Nixon to want to get revenge. And I think that if his second term had lasted longer than it did, he would have gotten revenge on a lot of people. The other thing that Nixon had in common with Trump was a loathing of the press. He used to tell his staff, right on the blackboard a hundred times, the press is the enemy, uh, you know, very Trumpian language before its time. And Nixon broke with tradition in terms of choosing his press secretary. Up until then, press secretaries always were um, essentially former journalists like Pierre Salinger with uh, uh, Kennedy or Frank Mankiewicz. Nixon hired an actual flack, Ron Ziegler, who had originally been a guide on the jungle ride at Disneyland, oh. Disneyland in Anaheim, <laughs> oh, but had then worked for J. Walter Thompson. That, and the denials of everything that was going on from Ziegler and his staff top member of his staff, by the way, Diane Sawyer, very much resembled the kind of denials we're hearing from, we heard from Spicer and, you know, and now uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Almost the language is almost word for word. It's a witch hunt. It's ridiculous. It's unsubstantiated. Uh, the president has already uh, been exonerated by previous investigations. All of this was in the Nixon denials, and we're just seeing it almost quoted verbatim now. And there's one other stunning parallel between Watergate and today. What was the Watergate break-in about? It was an effort to steal internal communications from the offices of the Democratic National Committee. Doesn't that sound something like what, what it, to the yeah. Trump campaign is accused of? Exactly. And a, it's exactly the same thing and a little 
a sort of forgotten part of it I didn't mention in my New York piece is that the break into the Democratic National Committee headquarters at Watergate was a way station. If they had not been arrested, the Watergate burglars were going on to another location in Washington to break into George McGovern's campaign offices. So it's exactly parallel, except for the fact it didn't involve potential collusion with a foreign government. It was all Nixon. It is, it is amazing. I want to, we only got a couple minutes left here, I, and I wanted to ask you to read one of my favorite concluding paragraphs in your piece on how a presidency ends. It's the, the perhaps paragraph, I call it. Okay, I'm happy to read it. I'm sort of embarrassed to read my own work, but I will give it a shot. Perhaps Trump won't fire Robert Mueller. Perhaps Mueller will determine that Trump is not guilty of collusion with the Russians, with Trump's voluntarily released tax returns as confirming evidence or of obstruction of justice. Perhaps Mueller will uncover no untoward financial dealings or subversive collaborations with the Kremlin and its network by any of the president's men. Perhaps the courts will find Trump not guilty of violating the emoluments clause that restricts a president from profiting from office. This last was debated as a possible article of impeachment for Nixon. Perhaps Trump will stay out of trouble, stay off Twitter, miraculously avoid perjury, brilliantly staff up the executive branch, and deliver fabulously on his promises to secure cheap health care for all Americans, cut everyone's taxes, and rebuild America's infrastructure. Perhaps Jared Kushner will bring peace to the Middle East and reinvent American government rather than follow his father to prison. Perhaps. (laughs) Perhaps. (laughs) Or perhaps not. Uh, So, yeah. So after, after wallowing in Watergate, what is your prediction about how the Trump presidency will end? Will it be that the Democratic House, after 2018, will vote articles of impeachment, the Senate will prepare to go to trial, and Mitch McConnell will lead a delegation to the White House to give him the word that he needs to resign? No, I think that I really don't think there's going to be impeachment. I think that essentially Trump at some point this is completely completely conjecture, just a gut feeling based on what I know about Trump and a little bit about what I know about history, but also about the state of play right now, is that there'll come a point where it will suit him to get out. He doesn't enjoy the job anyway. He's not any good at it. He's some, at some point going to figure out that he's not popular, no matter how many rallies he goes to in Ohio or West Virginia, and that people around him, including uh, conceivably his own son-in-law, are in tremendous legal jeopardy. And you know, I picture a scenario where he gets out somehow, presumably by resignation, which is what Nixon did, and then blames it all on everyone else and says, you know, the swamp got me, the swamp, including Republicans in the swamp, fought me, and and I'm going to go and fight from the outside. This is my fantasy Trump speech. And, you know, we're going to have a sort of a revolution from outside Washington because you can't win within Washington. He always blames someone else for everything else, everything that happens to him. So my feeling is he'll find some way to take his marbles and go home while the getting is good or maybe not so good because we don't know where all, all the Mueller investigations are going to end up. Frank Rich, he wrote about how a presidency ends for New York Magazine. Frank, it's been great having you on the show. Great talking to you as always, John.
What explains the vote of Trump supporters? Why did they vote the way they did? And most important, can we win any of them back? For some important new research on this vital question, we turn to Joshua Holland. He's a contributor to The Nation magazine, a writing fellow at The Nation Institute, and host of Politics and Reality Radio. Joshua Holland, welcome back. Hey, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, those white working class voters who made the difference in Trump's victory in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania, I thought Trump won them by promising to end Clintonian free trade deals, which had sent all those good manufacturing jobs overseas. And there is evidence for this. It's actually pretty good evidence at the end of the campaign. A Pew survey, which is a very good survey, found that Trump voters were twice as likely as Clinton voters to agree with the statement, free trade agreements have been a bad thing for the United States, and the statement, free trade agreements have definitely or probably hurt my family. So, we concluded Clinton was the wrong candidate and Bernie was on the right track. But you say now there's new research and actually better research about that. Tell us about this research. Well, it's interesting. You know, in the immediate aftermath of an election, especially one that produces such shocking results, I I, I think it's fair to say there is a demand for analysis that outstrips the amount of uh, solid data we have. So um, exit polls are high quality polls, but they have margins of error. A lot of people extrapolate from county level data. They say, here's a county that has lots of white working class people. It flipped by 9%. Therefore, we're going to say that white working class people felt this way or that way. And this new um, group of studies is actually four studies uh, from the voter survey group, voter study group. They used a different kind of methodology. What they did was they had a uh, panel of 8,000 individuals that they interviewed before and after the 2012 election. Ah. And then again, before the two, before and after the 2016 election. So instead of getting a snapshot in time of, uh, of, of a, a sample of, of opinion, they were able to track how people, individual opinions changed. And this is really important because there's a growing um, body of data that shows that we're very much influenced by campaigns. Our opinions are often shaped to conform to a political candidate that we like. So first we feel an affinity for a candidate, and then we say, okay, what is this person saying? I believe that too. So it's very true that at the end of the campaign where you had Donald Trump making this a center point of his campaign trade, you had this great disparity in these Pew polls. Um, You also saw this in the Democratic primaries, by the way, in terms of Sanders supporters and Clinton supporters. But when you go back and you look at the same individuals and how they felt in 2000 and 2000 in 2012 2011 and 2012 what you saw was that there were no significant differences in their views of trade as far as 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 predicting their preference for one politician over another so wow this so this is not to say and you know we have to be cautious not to overstate things it this is not to say that trade was not an issue it was an issue absolutely they talked about it people that resonated with people but what it wasn't what we didn't see was significant differences between trump supporters and supporters of other 
Republican candidates in the primaries in terms of the predictive value of trade, how important it was for their selection of candidates. And we saw again in the general election that it wasn't an important predictor of support for one candidate or the other. Let me just underline this. In the general election, views of trade were not an important predictor of whether voters would support Trump or Clinton. There were some differences, but they were relatively small. They weren't very significant. They, the issue of free trade did not seem to have much influence on the choices voters made. Have I got that right? That is right. And, you know, this gets into the whole hoary debate over economic versus cultural insecurity in, in the, the role of the elections. And I am, uh, right now we're talking about different pieces from different studies here. Yeah. One of the studies was by John Sides at uh, George Washington University, and he found that the only thing that was unique about voters' selection of candidates in 2016 compared to those same voters' um, views in 2012 was how they saw immigrants and immigration, Islam, their views of Islam, and their views of African-Americans' uh, work ethic and stereotypes around uh, African-Americans. So while there was certainly the case that if you thought the economy was doing terribly, you voted for the Republican candidate, you were most likely to vote for the Republican candidate in both elections. But the unique trait about 2016 was the increased salience of these issues. And, and this was... This was really key. These 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 things that we we would refer to as cultural uh, insecurity were also triggered by economic insecurity. So, for example, um, one of the studies by uh, Roy Teixeira found that if you had a very negative view of the economy in 2012, you were more likely to be hostile to express hostility towards immigrants in 2016. Okay. And a, an unstudied, pub, uh, unpublished datum by um, John Sides, I think, really highlighted this connection between economic and cultural insecurity. He found that there there was no big difference in uh, respondents' answer to the question of generally, how, are, are you worried about your job? But there was a very significant difference in the question, are you worried about your job being given to African-Americans? So uh-huh. what you saw was this this economic insecurity that was triggered by hostility towards others, towards outgroups. So let me put this in other words. The racist vote went strongly for Trump. Yes. And that that was a much more significant predictor of how people would vote than trade issues. Now, what surprised me a little bit about that is the Republicans being the racist party really is nothing new in 2016. I mean, Obama was the first black president. He ran in 2008. And actually, the choice was pretty clear all the way back to Goldwater in 1964 when LBJ was the president who had signed the Civil Rights Bill and Goldwater was the president who had voted against the Civil Rights Bill. So it's not really new that the Republicans appeal to racist voters. Yes. I mean, first of all, you summed up what I said in much clearer than I did, and I thank you for that. Okay. Much, much less wonky. Yes and no. So 
there it is true that there is a higher degree of what what researchers call racial animus as a kind of neutral academic term for racism in conservatives and liberals and republicans and democrats although we should never pretend that it doesn't exist on our side right but but here's the thing there's a few things that activated this that activated these latent hostilities in 2012 and 2008 you saw obama come to power with a coalition that was explicitly a coalition, this this Obama coalition that we heard a lot about. It was single women, you know, educated, urban, white liberals, and people of color. Yes. And this, this was a new thing. And John Sides said, well, look, one of his findings was that you saw this very dramatic increase in the knowledge of uh, non-college educated whites that the Democratic Party was more liberal on aid to blacks. And he said, look, you know, a lot of people don't pay close attention to politics. The rise of that Obama coalition, Obama's presidency itself clarified the differences between the parties for these people who were kind of unsure where they stood. And I think for me, the the most interesting thing about all of these studies, uh, and maybe we, we buried the lead here, is that those white working class Obama voters who switched to Trump, Obama 2012 to Trump in 2016, we've heard so much about them. There's been so much punditry and analysis and conjecture. What sides found is that they were moving towards the Republican Party long before the 2016 election cycle got underway. For, for me, this is so enlightening. You know, I asked John Sides, I asked actually several authors of these studies. So John Sides, a guy named Lee Drutman, who's at the New America Foundation and uh, is a political scientist at Johns Hopkins, and uh, Roy Teixeira. I asked them all this question. I said, could we see this as consistent with the tail end of a long realignment of yeah. non-college educated whites. You yes. know, we know that there was this big sudden shift in the 1960s. You know, um, they signed the Civil Rights Act. Johnson supposedly told my old boss, Bill Moyers, that they'll lose Southern whites for a generation. And that realignment was non-linear. It wasn't like everybody just decided, okay, we're going to stop being Democrats and we're going to be Republicans. In the, in the South, you had this huge migration, but then for the next couple of decades, you had this situation where among white working class voters, there were big regional differences. So the South was gone for Democrats, but they were still really competitive in the Pacific states, uh, in the Northeast, uh, in the North Central states that we're talking about in, in terms of the last election, they were still competitive. And what it looks like is that you saw a continuation of this long movement of this group from the uh, Democratic to the Republican camp. I have to ask you a question about that. What did you learn from our political scientists here about their sense of the chances of winning back these Obama to Trump voters who left the Democratic Party, what are the chances they could be brought back to the Democratic Party if there were a more Bernie-like candidate campaigning around uh, jobs and trade issues? Well, okay. So first of all, let's let's disentangle those two things because yeah. 
there is a whole debate over whether it should be the Bernie-like candidate or the or or something else. So let's 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 say could the Democrats win them back with one approach or another? Yes. My view is is no, my personal view, and that was the view of of two of the three political scientists that I interviewed for this piece, the the researchers behind these studies. They said, look, they're Republicans. And and the thing that we the thing that I always found, and I, I really questioned a lot of the conventional wisdom about these white working class voters switching en masse from Obama to Trump in 2016, one of the things that I found difficult to accept about that narrative that we heard so much about is that partisanship is pretty sticky. So there are realignments occasionally, and you see shifts between the parties certainly to some degree, but you don't see large numbers of people flip from one party to the other in a short amount of time because one candidate inspired them to to flip. People tend to vote according to their partisan preferences, and I think that the 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 view of, among from John Sides and Lee Drutman is that these voters are gone. They are now Republicans. They identify as Republicans. They will be extremely hard to win back. But I should caution that uh, Roy Teixeira, who is a tends to be optimistic about the, the Democratic coalition. He, he said, well, look, if if the Republicans overreach significantly and they manage to destroy the health care system and kick millions of people off their coverage and do a lot of economic damage, they could be won back. And I, I, I think that's probably right. It, it's just that we shouldn't we shouldn't count on winning them back as being the a holy grail for electoral success. And another important piece of this is that the bo- there's been movement between both coalitions among white people, or white people, as some people say, <laughs> at, at the same time as we've seen non-college-educated whites shifting uh, from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party, we've seen college-educated whites going in the other direction. Again, this predated the 2016 election. This movement was already underway, according to these longitudinal studies that looked back at 2012. So if you think about these individuals as somehow being more important than other voters, then okay, we have to obsess about how to win them back. But if you're just looking at building party coalitions that can win, um, I'm not sure that they're they're necessary. Joshua Holland, read him at thenation.com. Josh, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much for taking the time. Now it's time to talk about the resistance. Many people here and elsewhere have direct experience with countries where an autocrat has seized control, changing everything from daily life to the laws and the Constitution. For some lessons from around the globe for the age of Trump, we turn to David Cole. He's the nation's legal affairs correspondent, the author most recently of the book, Engines of Liberty, The Power of Citizen Activists to Make Constitutional Law. And he's also the editor of an important new book called Rules for Resistance. Most important, he's National Legal Director of the ACLU. David Cole, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. So to find rules for resistance in the age of Trump, you gathered strategies and tactics from people all over the place. Uh, Let's start for a minute with the big picture. 
every place you look in this book, Rules for Resistance, you find resistance to autocrats, whether it's Turkey, Russia, Egypt, Poland, the Philippines. Uh, is there one central form of resistance and defense that you can point to? Well, I think it, it takes many uh, forms, but there are certain common themes, to be sure. And, and you know, one of the themes is that illiberal regimes are unfortunately not the exception, but maybe the norm, uh, that they are, you know, they are found on every continent throughout uh, the, the world, uh, you know, in the, in the 21st century. So, you know, we have contributions from Europe, from Africa, from Latin America, from Asia, from the Middle East. Uh, and they are all from people who have lived under uh, autocratic regimes, but have not accepted those uh, autocracies lying down, uh, and have instead stood up and resisted in one way or another. And you know, I think that the the, the principal forms of resistance are are, are not all that uh, surprising. They are uh, they are demonstrations. They are you know speaking out uh, in in the streets, putting your body on the line can be very effective. We recently saw, just in the last week, saw an example of that in Poland, where the um, the Polish uh, legislature was uh, and government was threatening to uh, undermine the independence of the courts, and people went out and mass into the streets and protested. And the uh, the Polish uh, president, seeing that, uh, vetoed the, the two of the laws that were uh, would have undermined the independence of the judiciary. So, so one. It is 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 the kind of thing we saw with respect to the women's march uh, after uh, the day after the inauguration. The kind of thing we saw with respect to the airport demonstrations, people going out in the streets. A second form, uh, really important form, uh, is the media. And a number of the contributions in this book talk about the critical role that uh, that journalists play, and that the and independent media plays, and the sort of the flip side of that, the ways in which a, a weakened media can can facilitate um, autocracy, uh, and then a third and uh, extremely important form is is civil society, uh, organizations of people who come together around a set of principles that. Uh, that then can act over time and in a coordinated fashion to to push back and and all of those are play roles in in different ways in different countries to to push back against uh, against illiberal regimes. You open your new edited book Rules for Resistance with a report from Hungary by a writer named Miklos Horatzi. Uh, Hungary has a Trump-like leader. It's fascinating to see what has been effective in such different countries around the world. He says that in Hungary, what really has gotten the public mobilized was outrage over personal and family corruption, greed, cronyism, mm. and hypocrisy. Of course, Jared Kushner is testifying under oath before the House committee. The tr sons of Trump are in trouble. It seems like it seems like maybe uh, Hungary is not alone in a country where the leader's family provides a target for his uh, his critics and the for the defenders of uh, of freedom. Yeah, well corruption, you know, uh corruption in in, in that sense is a is an extraordinarily corrosive influence 
in in government. It undermines trust in government. It is deeply problematic. And and you know many countries of the world have had to, had to deal with rampant corruption in their uh, in their governments for for decades. Relatively speaking, we've been free of the kind of you know blatant kinds of corruption. We have more subtle forms of corruption in in campaign finance and and the like. But but we're now you know the, the, what Trump has brought to uh, the White House is the kind of blatant corruption that we tend to associate with uh, uh, with very different kinds of regimes and. And yeah, in Hungary, it, it was it was a mobilizing force. Here, it seems to be a mobilizing force for some, but it seems that there are a lot of people who are uh, sufficiently enamored of Donald Trump that they don't care that he has refused to separate his personal finances and his personal well-being and the finances of his family from the power of his office, as the Constitution requires. Italy provides another fascinating case with uh, examples and lessons for the United States. Silvio Berlusconi, we've often heard, is really the closest figure to Trump on the world political stage. And in your book, uh, Rules for Resistance, the writer Alexander Stila writes about Berlusconi. Berlusconi was in power for, I think, 17 years. He says there were two keys to eventually bringing down Berlusconi. One was the media, Berlusconi had had really gained massive control over his own media and the national media in Italy. And he underlined the way the independent media is a crucial resource for resistance. And he also says what really doomed Berlusconi in the end was traditional pocketbook issues that Berlusconi, like Trump, had promised to bring uh, great jobs to everybody. He didn't fulfill that promise. It took a while, but that was the one thing that got to his base, that got to his true believers. That seems like it's very likely uh, to be the similar scenario here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and you know, we—I mean, Trump has done. Wall Street has has uh, been on a roll uh, since his election, but um, uh, he's done virtually nothing for uh, the the very uh, people who have been sort of forgotten in the. Uh, Sort of partial recovery that we've had since 2008, and as you know, as as he as he continues to do not for them, uh, I think many of them will uh, lose faith in 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 Donald Trump. I, I thought one of the interesting points that uh, that that author made uh, was that there's a, there's this real connection between the way our media has developed, and this is true in Italy as well, uh, and the way our national politics have developed. And he he says. You know, if you think of Trump as following on John McCain and Mitt Romney, he seems, you know, very anomalous. Uh, he doesn't yes. fit. He doesn't fit the traditional Republican presidential candidate mold in any way, shape, or form. But if you think of his precursors not as John McCain and Mitt Romney, but as Rush Limbaugh and Bill O'Reilly. Yes. Uh, then he fits perfectly. Yes. And and there's a way in which Berlusconi too, you know, he controlled the media. He uh, engaged in a kind of tabloid populist media, which then made it possible for a tabloid populist 
candidate to, to come forward. And Trump didn't control the media, but the, the, the divide in our media today, the Fox and the Breitbart News versus the MSNBCs and the like, that division, I think, is very much a, a part of the story here, and, and as it was uh, as it was in Italy. And now I'm not, I'm not sure what the solution is there, because I think we are increasingly living in, in just two two separate worlds and, and you know, never do, do the twain meet. And, and so it's very hard to get anyone to see our common interests if everyone is on one side uh, of the aisle or the other and not listening to anyone from the other side. I think we have time to talk about one other international source of lessons for the United States. Your book also includes a chapter on Israel written by Bernard Avishai. He emphasizes the reason that the uh, right-wing uh, Likud movement has been so powerful and, and that the opposition has been so weak. He thinks one of the keys is they don't have anything like our state governments, that resistance from state governments is a tremendous resource that we have here and that we should not forget about. I would say yes and no. Um, I do think that with Trump in the, in, in, in the presidency, with the Republican control of both houses and a fairly extreme Republican control of both houses uh, and Republican control of the Supreme Court, you need to look to, to some degree for other avenues of authority for checks and balances. And so um, in the United States, the federalist system that we uh, we built up is designed to give states a fair amount of autonomy, uh, a fair amount of uh, independence from the federal government. And that means that they can be uh, sources for uh, alternative views and sources uh, for checks and balances. And so, you know, we've seen that with uh, some of the state attorneys general who have sued to challenge the Trump ban, whether it be Hawaii or Washington or uh, Massachusetts attorneys general. And, and uh, attorneys general of Maryland and Washington, D.C. Uh, have, have sued Trump over the, uh, over the emoluments uh, issue of, of uh, failing to separate his personal finances from the uh, public office. On the other hand, you know, the the Republican Party was very strategic and very focused in focusing their attention on state electorates and state legislative battles, and they control about two-thirds of the uh, of the state government. So, so the, uh, the there are opportunities for checks and balances and for alternative sources of authority in the states, um, but the party control over two-thirds uh, coupled with the party control over both the presidency and Congress and the Republican majority in the Supreme Court means that we have our work cut out for us. The book is Rules for Resistance, Advice from Around the Globe for the Age of Trump. It's edited with an introduction by David Cole, and it's out now in paperback from The New Press. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me, John. Always a pleasure. Finally, a word about Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide, hosted by the sports editor of The Nation, and featuring Dave Zirin's interviews, his commentary, and his rants 
So even if you're a sports fan who hates politics or a political junkie who hates sports, you'll find something to love in this podcast. It's posted every Tuesday, now at thenation.com slash edge of sports. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano, with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.